Hi. Guys, we're going to nerd out hardcore tonight. It's going to be great. If you have your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 6. We have so much to cover and not enough time. And we finished last night with what feels like uh, the, the most desperate conundrum in all of humankind, which is how do we understand that the requirements for entering God's kingdom are that we must be perfect, while at the same time the scripture tells us that no one except Jesus is. Let's put it this way. The, the, the guest list for heaven is only one name long. That name is Jesus, and it's not your name. The guest list for heaven doesn't go beyond Jesus Christ, the only perfect son of God. The Bible says, from iniquity, we, in, from uh, conception we were born into iniquity. We have all preposterated that iniquity every single day. We make it worse. We lust, we steal, we murder with hatred in our hearts. We are a messed up people. There is no one righteous, not even one. So what do we do with this conundrum? We, we, the whole point of coming to camp is to talk about how do we get to have Jesus forever in heaven, and yet the bad news of sin is no one's going to make it. How do you satisfy the conundrum when the God of the universe must uphold his perfect justice, and yet all of our court cases are, you failed, there has to be a solution, and the solution can't be God going, you know what, sin's not a big deal. Because that would be God changing his mind, and it would be unjust. And it can't be God going, I'm going to look the other way and I'll let y'all in the kingdom. Because that wouldn't be justice. He knows all. He sees all. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent. And with that, we come to the conundrum of the gospel, which satisfies all things. Daniel chapter 6, we've got no time. Are you ready? Here we go, guys. Uh, and you know what? There's a whiteboard behind me. You know what that means? We're going to learn something tonight. It's going to be fun. All right. Here we go. Daniel chapter 6. Whether you're a church kid or you're not a church kid or you're Chaz the homeschool kid, you've heard this story. Okay? <laughs> yeah, okay. I love how Chaz has become the mascot for this week. Okay, here we go. Here's what it says. I want you to pick up on a few things. This story is affectionately called Daniel in the lion's den because, well... Daniel goes into a lion's den, so it's appropriately named. Now, so there's a new king in charge, and the king, just like the old king, really loves the idea of everyone worshiping and following him. So this group of people realizes that Daniel, because of what he did for Nebuchadnezzar, is kind of outranking them. So they go, we got to get rid of this dude. How are we going to do it? So right here we see, if you want to start making notes in the Bible, you can do this. Remember, what is the book of Daniel about? Jesus, good. But what is the book of Genesis about? Jesus. Exodus. Jesus. Leviticus. Jesus. Numbers. Jesus. Deuteronomy. Jesus. First hesitations. Jesus. Not a book of the Bible. <laughs> Blasphemy. Everyone who said that, you're gone. Okay. So, it's all about him. Now, so if you want to start taking notes, this is the story of Daniel. I got a news flash for you. The story of Daniel isn't about Daniel. The story of Daniel is about Jesus. Good. So, first of all, we see that we get this guy named Daniel. He's one of a part of three people in an administration, okay? So he's one of three. Write that down. Now, there's a conspiracy to kill him. Write that down. We get a conspiracy to kill him. He, however, though, here's what it says in verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel, but they could find no corruption in him. Finally, in verse 5, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man. So, he's one of three. There's a conspiracy for his murder. He's found innocent. They find no basis for charges against him. So the king issues a decree and says, no one can pray unless they're praying to me. Daniel goes away and prays three times. Write it down. He goes and prays three times. This is in verse 10. Goes up into his, he faces Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knee and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Verse 13. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he's from the tribe of Judah. Write that down. We get a man from the tribe of Judah, and he is found guilty now of blasphemy. He's found guilty of the crime of treason. We told you to worship our king, and you seem to worship a different king. 
So they say the punishment for that is to get thrown into the lion's den. So what happens? The king gives the order against his will. For whatever reason, this king, this governor, this prefect, this ruler said, I don't want to kill this guy. So we find a governor who says, uh, I don't want anything to do with him. Then verse 17, a large stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den or the mouth of the cave. So now we get a big stone rolling over the cave and the king seals it with his own signet ring and a, and a governor's seal is placed on the tomb, on the stone, on the cave. So that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace. There's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth. What the heck are we gonna do? At verse 19, early in the morning, write that down, early in the morning, the king gets up and hurries to the lion's den. When he heard, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. He was found innocent nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Death found him innocent. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in God. So if you're new to this story or you've never heard this story before, and I said, I want you to tell me a story from the Bible where a guy who is a part of a trinity, one of three, there's a conspiracy for his murder, but he's found innocent. Without any base for charge against them, people construct a plan to find him guilty. He goes away and he prays and he prays and he prays three times. This man is from the tribe of Judah. He is then placed in a cave with a stone rolled in front of it and the governor seals it until the next morning, early in the morning, people go and find that he is not dead, but he is alive. What's this story about? Jesus! It has nothing to do with Daniel. Daniel is a real character, but Daniel was his shadow. He's a foreshadowing. The whole book is about Jesus. The main thing that we must realize in our own lives is if you have resigned the idea that your life is about fame, or popularity, or sex, or relationships, or school, or grades, or money, or whatever, you're wrong. Because if you want to experience John 10, 10 life, real life, you will understand the concept that your life is the same as the Bible. If you want it to end heroically, it must be about what it's about, Jesus. And if you want your life to end in tragedy, make it about yourself. Your life appropriately lived out will have everything to do with Jesus. He's why we live and breathe. The, the, the Bible says in him we live and move and have our being. This is how we were built to live. We are Christ's ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Isaiah chapter, 40, Isaiah chapter 43 says, we are created for God's glory. Your whole life lived appropriately is all about Jesus. Now, now we're gonna get real nerdy. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. where'd my pen go? Here it is. Daniel chapter nine, turn two chapters, three chapters to the right. We get what's called a prophecy. The book of Daniel was written in the year 540 BC. That is 540 years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene. And Daniel makes a prophecy. And here's his prophecy. So he's foretelling. Remember, this book of Daniel is placed in the ground in Qumran. Then we find the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. So no one's touched it. No one's tampered with it. No one's changed the dates, times, locations, or anything. This is a prediction that was made. And then it went untouched for thousands of years until we found it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, we found the book of Daniel before that. But if you don't know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, it's a group of writings of the Bible that hadn't been touched since about the year 200 BC, and we found them in 1947 AD. So all the prophecies about Jesus found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, some people go, well, people went later on and changed the prophecies to match Jesus' life. It's impossible. No one had touched these things since the whole life of Jesus had taken place. So here's the prophecy. Daniel, with the power of the Holy Spirit, teaching in a book called Daniel, which is all about Jesus. predicts something. Here's what it says. Verse 25. Know and understand this. 
from the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So we get our beginning date. The beginning date is the restoration of Jerusalem. From the restoration of Jerusalem, he tells us when to start counting. Okay? As soon as the restoration of Israel begins, of Jerusalem begins, here's what I want you to do. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Mashiach, this is Jesus, the one who is going to save the people from their sins, the better Daniel. You see, Daniel was saved from the mouth of the lion's den. He was a weaker part. He was a weaker shadow. Jesus isn't going to be spared from death. The lions will consume him. The only reason Daniel lives is because Jesus dies. The only reason that Daniel is a foreshadowing of Jesus is because Jesus, in his righteousness and perfection, dies the death that Daniel deserved to die. Jesus dies the death that I deserve to die. And if you are a child of God, he's died the death that you deserve to die. If you're not a child of God, you will, death, you will die the death that you deserve to die. It's as simple as it is. So the anointed one means the coming king, the coming Messiah, when the coming Messiah announces himself as the, as the Messiah in Jerusalem, takes place on a day that we call the triumphal entry. Triumphal entry. When he comes in and says, it's me. I'm what the Old Testament is about. People wave their flags and they scream, Hosanna, which means save us now. Holy is he who comes Ho blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the king we've been waiting for. Daniel says, let me tell you the exact time frame between the restoration of Jerusalem and when Jesus comes in the triumphal entry. Remember, this is written in, in 540 BC and no one touches it until 1947 AD. So this is a big prediction. This dude thinks he's gonna tell you to the day when it happened. Let's see if he's right. He says this, first of all, I want you to count seven sevens, then I want you to add that to the number, which is 62 sevens, okay? For all my math nerds in here, this is 49 plus 434, which equals 483. 483 what? 483 years. The problem is the years that they used in, this, in the Jewish calendar were lunar years, okay? So lunar years are a period of 360 days. So let's find out exactly how many days we should be counting. 360 lunar days times how many years? 483 years gives us how many days from the start of the temple until the anointed one comes in. It's this number, 173,880 Days, but is this lunar days or solar days? Lunar days. So let's transform that into our modern solar calendar by doing this. We take this number, 173,880, and we divide it by a solar year, which is what? How many days? It's actually not exactly that. It's 365.2422. Because, did you know, every, every, every once in a while we got to kind of change the calendar because it's not exactly 365 days. Anyway, now you know because it's Mike's super short show. Okay, so we divide 173,880 days by what we would calculate it in, which is the number of solar days, 365.2422. And the answer you get is we're looking from the time the restoration of Jerusalem begins to the triumphal entry, he predicts, is going to be a pattern of 476 years, and then you have this left over, which equals 25 days. That's bold. You sit in 540 BC, and you go, first of all, the walls are going to be rebuilt, and when that's rebuilt, I want you to count 476 years and 25 days. That's when you'll know the anointed one has entered Jerusalem. So, the book of Nehemiah, which takes place after all this takes place, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we find out when the beginning of the restoration of Israel happened, which is on the first of a month called Nisan in the year 444 B.C. You don't know what day the first of Nisan is because it's a different calendar. The exact same date in our calendar would have been March 5th of 444 B.C. 
So we take March 5th, 444 BC, and we add how much time to it? 476 years and 25 days, and you arrive at March 30th of the year 33 AD, which is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem in all historical record. Okay. Got it. So, Daniel is all about Jesus. Good. Okay. Fantastic. This is a lot of nerdery for one thing. I'm going to move this board. Is it kind of distracting? No? Maybe I'll just leave it there. All right. Why do we believe the Bible? Because it does stuff like this. It's not the same as other belief systems. It is not some fairy tale or fable. He predicts this. It comes to pass. There's over 1,960 prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ, all of which are fulfilled. Over and over again, the Bible finds itself to be reliable. It's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecy and whose authors claim to be divine rather than human in origin. It's a trustworthy book. And here's what the book says about you. The same book that's able to predict all these things ahead of time with so much accuracy and so much precision that modern mathematicians don't know what to do with it. To accomplish 1,960 prophecies hundreds of years ahead of time to be filled by one man by mere chance is the odds of 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. There are 1 in 10 to the 80th power atoms in the entire known universe. Which means if you wanted to begin to understand how unlikely it is that the Bible foretells events, those events, that, those prophecies and predictions are then buried in the ground and they all come to pass exactly how they said without anyone tampering with them, there isn't even a number big enough for you to begin to comprehend how unlikely and infinitesimal the, the idea and the, the probability of that is. I'm telling you this to, to let you know that, this is, that, that you do not have to check your brain at the door to follow Jesus. This is what I thought. If you want to have a real faith, I thought you had to be brainless. And yet what it really was in my case was ignorance. And, and that's the thing that I've talked to you about this whole week. I don't care if you walk out of here and you say, I now understand the gospel. And knowing all those things, I'm not ready to accept it. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I want you to know him. But what I want more than anything else is for you to get an accurate understanding of what the gospel is, to know the real Jesus. At least reject God himself, not some fake Build-A-Bear God that you've created in your mind. Not some culturally acceptable, modern-day, postmodern, politically correct Jesus that you think is disinteresting because he's just going to let everybody in. That's not what the text says. There's a, lot that, there's a lot of ways to be creative with the gospel, and I don't care about creativity. I just want to be really clear with you. I've promised to treat you like adults and to talk to you point blank, and that's what I'm going to do. How I'm going to do that is I want to tell you how you could possibly be saved if all of the system is stacked against you. If you are, Ephesians 2 verse 3, broken from childhood, you have nothing that you can do, you were born into iniquity, conceived into it in the first place, and then every day in thought, word, action, attitude, and deed, we have committed sins against God, and in everything that God has called us to do to perfectly emulate him, we have omitted sins, where God has said, I want you to be generous, I want you to, and we've said no. We sin every single day. And all it takes is one sin, including being born human, as the book of James tells us, if you're guilty in one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So if we all, all of us, are adulterous, murderous, thieves, liars, drunkards, swindlers, uh, genocidal, maniacal, proud, egomaniacs, that's what the Bible says. There is no one righteous, not even one. And if you stumbled in one part of the law, you have guilt in all of it. And if our standard of getting into heaven is we must be as good as Jesus Christ, we're not going to make it. The guest list for heaven is one name long. And I'll tell you what that name is not. It is not Chris Hilkin. And it is not your name. If you look at the, if you look at the guest list for heaven, your name's not on there. There's only one name. I'm, I'm sure they bought a lot more parchment than that. But it just says Jesus Christ written in blood. It's just him. So how am I, a filthy, miserable, murderous, adulterous sinner, going to stand before a holy and perfect God 
And he say, have you lived up to the perfect standard that I have called or have you rebelled with treason against me? I need a solution that doesn't get rid of the justice of God, that upholds his perfect character in all things. And God is bound by something too. The father of all things is bound by his own character and justice. He does not change like shifting shadows, the Bible tells us. He must punish treason, idolatry, and sin with its proper consequence, hell, always. He cannot relent on that or else he's unjust. So what do we do with this conundrum? Here's what the Bible says. I'm gonna spend the rest of this time walking you through five verses in the New Testament. I'd like you to get at your Bibles and look at it yourself so you can make an accurate understanding and a, and a proper decision about what you wanna do with the story of Jesus in your life. If you have your Bibles, open to the book of Romans. The book of Romans is towards the back of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans is the New Testament. If you don't know where the book of Romans is, if you've never held a Bible before, if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. Are there Bibles in the back, Mikey? Yes? If you need a Bible, we got Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself. I don't want you to think that one Bieber-looking dude told me that one thing that one time. I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to read it with your own eyeballs, I want you to understand it with your own synapses in your brain, and then I want you to process it in your own hearts, and then I want you to decide with your lives. Fair? Romans. If you don't know what Romans is, if there's a homeschool kid around you, they'll find it for you (laughs) in about 2.3 seconds. I found Romans! I get an M&M now. By the way, all of my kids are homeschooled, so there you go. Romans. Chapter one. If you don't know how to find the Bible, anything in the Bible too, um, the Holy Spirit put a table of contents at the beginning and you can just turn there and it'll say Romans, page whatever, and you can turn to that. I'll tell you in a second. Right now, just find the book called Romans and then we'll go from there. I I just, I want you to see it. I just want you to, I want you to reject what you want to reject, but I want you to reject the truth. Don't reject the lie. (laughs) As an apologist, I meet so many atheists that reject the Jesus that doesn't exist, and I hate it. It's like, at least get the story. At least understand the expectations. Likewise, there are people sitting in here that the Bible says will get to the gates of heaven and cry out, Lord, Lord, look, it's me, and that Jesus' response is gonna go, I don't know who you are. That should terrify all of us. Because the Bible seems to indicate it's not just those who are out there in the party lifestyle that you look your nose down on if you think you're one of the religious elite. The religious elite will also get to the gates of heaven if they haven't surrendered their sin and their pride over to Jesus. And Jesus will look at them and say, you were the God of your life. Law was the God of your life. Church was the God of your life. That's confusing, isn't it? Church isn't Jesus. Morality isn't Jesus. Church attendance isn't Jesus. My one defense, my righteousness, is not you being a good person, it's Jesus. Here's what the Bible says. I'm gonna go through it verse by verse, and we're gonna arrive at a conclusion that I'm gonna ask you to respond. Here's what it says. Verse one, or chapter one, beginning at verse uh, 18, says this. The wrath of God, okay? The wrath of God is God's holy anger against treason. It's his holy anger that in his perfect justice must purify and expunge all treason. That's what a good judge would do. If you have a judge in your district, city, state, whatever it is, and they see injustice and do nothing about it, that's a big deal. Now, when people in your city and state and county commit injustices, they do it against other broken, miserable sinners. This is different. When you sin against Jesus, you're not sinning against another poor, broken, miserable sinner. You're sinning against the king of the universe. You and I recognize something, that the greater the authority, the greater the punishment for sin against them. If my son Brady punches my daughter Harper, I'm mad. He might get disciplined. He might get a time out. He might experience some form of pain, whatever it might be. He's gonna get punished. That's gonna happen. You can't hit Harper. My son must realize from a young age, rebellion equals pain. That is what's gonna happen when he shows up late to his job. That's what's gonna happen if he would ever to cheat on his spouse. If you rebel against God's patterns, you will experience pain. My job as a parent, 
is to begin that process young. You rebel against dad, it's gonna hurt. You rebel against dad, it's gonna hurt. If that kid grows up and keeps hitting women, at least he gets a little punishment now rather than what happens if he grows up and hits women. You're going to the clink, my friend, right? You're gone. So I gotta teach that from a young age. Now, if he hits his sister, he's gonna get punished appropriately. He's not going to prison. He's not getting the electric chair. Now, imagine my son Brady grows up, and now, instead of hitting Harper, he goes and he hits uh, uh, his teacher. Huh? Oh, you felt that, didn't you? Why is that different? Harper's a woman. Let's say that the teacher is a woman. What difference does it make? Oh, authority changes, eldership changes. And even, even the idea of Harper probably deserved it, that teacher probably did not, right? Now, imagine it's not a teacher, it's a police officer. Oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't a police officer. It was the president of the United States. It's like, it, it becomes, you see how it happens? The greater the authority and the greater the power, the greater the consequence. Now, imagine that same offense multiplied a billion fold against the perfect omnipotent creator of all things. That is treason on a cosmic scale and it must be punished accordingly. And the Bible says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. And they suppress the truth of God by their wickedness. wickedness. You hear what it's saying? It's saying that everyone by nature knows the truth of God, but they suppress it because their foolish hearts are darkened. Here's what it says. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What does this tell us? This tells us that one day if you get to heaven and you say, well, if you're there, why didn't you demonstrate? Why didn't you show yourself to us? God's response is gonna be, I wrote it in the text. If you ask God, why do you keep yourself hidden? God's response would be to you, I didn't. I've written my majesty, my, the, the finitude by which I do things, the detail that I take on things is shown in the subatomic particles, in the way that the nuclear membrane is made up, in the way that the flagella moves across the cell, the DNA is able to replicate more versions of you. You, you think that was an accident? No, no, that, that, it's not my fault that you have taken the intricacies of the human cell and resigned it to a cosmic accident. That's not on me, friend. I wrote my obviousness from the cells to the lake to the mountains that overlook the very place you first heard this message. Did you not walk out on the lawn and look out at the majesty and not think to yourself, what made this? No, you thought, who made this? This is what happens when we see design. When you see design anywhere in all of the world, you think someone did it. But now you see design in your cell, in your thoughts, in the world, in nature, in patterns, in the interstellar systems, and you think, well, that's all a big accident. Like, we're walking in the woods the other day, and my five-year-old Brady, someone has carved in the side of a tree C plus R with a heart around it. Do you want to know what my five-year-old said? Dad, who wrote that? You see how simple it is? C plus R with a heart around it. None of us in here are dumb enough to walk up to that tree and go, interesting. What do you think? <laughs> huh, right? If someone in your group was like, it was a beaver. The beaver climbs it, right? <laughs> and if someone else was like, no, 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 no. Windstorm, rock chiseling out. That simple, C plus R with a heart around it, every single one of us and anyone who's ever lived will look at a pattern that simple and go, someone was here. If you went to an unknown region that had never been inhabited, ever, no one had ever stepped foot there, and you saw the message, C plus R with the heart around it, what would you conclude? Someone's been here. <laughs> Whoever thought this was not charted is wrong. 
Someone's been here before, that level of intricacy. And now, right now, for the number of things to work in your brain, from your neurons to your synapses, to your frontal cortex to be perceiving the way that I am right now, your rods, your cones, the millions of different systems right now that are now at work. Right now, there are more electrical systems in your brain at work looking at me and hearing language and processing it than there is in the whole county of Los Angeles. You have more neurological connections in your brain than electrical connections in the county of Los Angeles to see me. And then your brain flips it upside down so you can make sense of it. And as I'm talking about this and moving my hands around, which you can see, I've been talking the whole time. But what I'm saying is nothing but noises, noises that you call words. And those words have come to have meaning in your life. And I can talk about this fast. You can still understand what I'm saying because your brain is doing all these things without you ever thinking about it. Meanwhile, your heart's still beating. And your, your, the, the neurons and the atoms in your brain are all completely redoing themselves at a rate that is so fantastically infinitesimal and changing so that you can continue to exist. You don't even tell yourself to breathe. You're doing it on autopilot, except right now you started thinking about your breathing. Now you're all, that's all freaked out. <laughs> and... The DNA inside of your body, there's a man named Francis Collins who was, who was not a believer, who was in charge of mapping out the human genome. When he finishes mapping out the human genome, the president of the United States gives him a medal in science. He wins the Nobel Prize in science. Then he writes a book called The Language of God. He contributes everything he knows about the genome to be the actual written language of the God of the universe. He publishes that book, and he... The, the actual founder and finisher of the Human Genome Project says, you can't look at the A's, T's, G's, C's in the DNA sequencing and think there isn't a God. I just don't know how you can say it. So, Paul begins by saying, let's get one thing clear. It is not the obvious thing of secular culture says, well, it's obvious there is no God and you must prove it to me. The Bible says the opposite. It's obvious someone was here. Because if C plus R with a heart around it means someone was here, then thousands and thousands and thousands of letters and numbers in your system, it's actually computer code to make more of you. And the number of systems working together all in cohesiveness is this perfect dance that there's no way accidents could have created in the first place. So if that equals design, and you don't equal design, you have committed what's called the logical taxicab fallacy, which means you think that something simple is perfectly designed, but something phenomenally more complex couldn't be designed. That's a logical fallacy. And it means that you're not arguing with your mind, you're arguing with your will. That you don't want to think there's a God. That's why you think that people are an accident, because you don't want to know the truth that there's a God. Because if there's a God, there's accountability. If there's God, there's an afterlife. If there's God, you're more than just skin and bones. You are soul. So the Bible says we have suppressed the truth of God with our wickedness. That's the first part of the gospel. <laughs> Bummer. It's going to get worse. Turn two pages to Romans chapter 3. It should be a big number 3. And then a small number 10. Here's what it says. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. On that same chapter 3, go down to verse 23, and it says this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This word all is not a mistake. It wasn't some translation error. The word all means all people, all time, all scenarios. Everyone who stacks up against Jesus falls short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were all made for God's glory, Isaiah 43 says. We've all fallen short of that glory, Romans tells us. Well, who cares? I fell short. At least I tried. Does it really make that big of a difference? Here's what Romans 6.23 says. It says, the way that you act, so look at big number six, small number 23. The Bible says, there is a God. He has a perfect standard. You've all fallen short of it. So what? Well, here's what 623 says. It says, just like if you work a job, if you work at a restaurant, if you work at a fast food joint, if you work as a barista, whatever it is, when you act and when you work and when you continue to perpetuate that, you earn a wage. The Bible says you have sinned from birth and you kept working at that sin and making it bigger and making it worse and continually rejecting God and you've earned a wage too. But the wages of in and out is $10 an hour and the wages of sin is death. So you've earned something too. 
you've earned death. And that death doesn't just mean physical death. Remember, in God's economy, everyone, everybody dies. Every body, avatar, dies. But in, every, in, in Greek thought, all souls live on forever. So when he says the wages of sin is death, he doesn't just mean bodily death. That's everyone's sentence. He means eternal death, hell, separation from God. The wages of the sin that we've committed has earned us the penalty of hell forever. This is the conundrum. And in your court case, you stand accused and the evidence stacks up against you. And as you sit there, the perfect God of the universe says, I created you perfectly in my image and you've rebelled against me. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And if you say, not guilty, not guilty, I tried. I did my best. I'm not Hitler. I did, I did a lot of good. Maybe I did some bad things, but I did some good things too. I've been on like 18 mission trips. Here's what the Bible says. If you aren't in Christ, every good thing that you've done is a pile of dirty, filthy, used rags in front of a perfect and holy God. And those, the idea of dirty, used rags in the text has to do, think about medical rags that have already been used in the, a medical procedure. You take a whole bunch of used, old, worn out, disgusting, festering medical rags, and you go, well, maybe I was sinful, but look at all the good things I did. Is that getting me anywhere? And God goes, that's called pride. You thought you could earn your way to heaven, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works. So when you try to earn a free gift, you're not just more sinful, you're stupid. <laughs> Who tries to earn a free gift? That doesn't make any sense. You want a free car. Oh, that's awesome. When do I start? When do I start what? When do I start working for the free car? It's a free car. By nature, it's a gift. So when we go, oh, I get that it's a free gift, but I'm gonna work for it. That is called pride. So you are standing accused, and if you declare not guilty, then here's what's gonna happen. The judge is gonna say, all right, roll tape. <laughs> and what you're gonna watch is your whole life played out in front of you. And if there's any thought of sin, if there's any sexual thought, if there's any and if there's any thought of theft, if there's any envy, or if you've ever been called to do something by the Spirit of God and you didn't do it, like maybe you went to return, a, have you ever downloaded Apple on your phone and it says, I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions? You ever check that junk without reading it? Yes, you have. Liars! I have every time, right? I said, come on, God, it can't count. Okay, anyway. But... As soon as the tape starts, it says, this man or this woman was born of man. Well, you've already failed. <laughs> you've already fallen short of God's glory. And he's gonna go, you wanna keep going? You're already, you're already, you're condemned to hell. You, you've already participated in the mutiny by the nature of your nature. You have sinned against me in cosmic treason. You have said not guilty. I declare that you are guilty. The justice must be poured out. The wages of sin is death. Away from me, evildoer, to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I never knew you. Go. Next. You see, that's a problem for anyone who stands. This is what the Pharisees did. The religious elite thought they could stand there and go, not guilty, in front of a perfect and holy judge. This is why Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't come for people who think they're gonna be not guilty, I came for those who recognize their guilt and I hope that's you tonight. The scariest place to be in this room is if you're thinking, I hope the sinners are listening to this conversation. I hope the people who joined our church this week who are the partiers, I hope they're really paying attention. I hope the ones who only show up every time I go to Hume Lake are really listening to this guy because they need it. Friend, your heart is far from God. If you are hoping that they really get it so that they can get theirs rather than weeping in your heart and praying that God's mercy will overcome them and they will turn to become part of your family, that is the heart of Jesus for the people that are sitting around you. And you may be the older brother in the, in the prodigal son story and I know you know what I'm talking about because you're part of the religious elite. He needed grace too and it wasn't given to him because he did not bow the knee. You need to surrender also. Now, the wages of sin is death. And there's a but. 
this conjunction is a crucial one. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's how the court case goes. You stand there accused, and there will be two kinds of people. They will either stand in that moment and say, not guilty, and God will go, okay. They will fall short, they will fail, and they will be sent away to the place where people go when they say, treason is mine, I'll pay my own price. In their pride, I'll deal with what I gotta deal with. I'm not bound to this guy. I don't need anyone to help me. I don't need anyone to vouch for me. I'll do it on my own. I'm a pretty good person. Or there are those who will say guilty as charged. <laughs> Look, I know you got a list. And I know my name's not on that list. But 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter named Jesus who claimed to be God in human flesh came and died on a cross. And when he died on that cross, what he did was that punishment of death on a cross was a punishment for treason. And for whatever reason, that guy, God in a human flesh, died in my place. So I don't have to be guiltless. I don't have to be because he said he would take my place. So before you finish your sentencing, judge, I'd like, I'd like to make a substitution and you look over at Jesus, and Jesus stands in your place. And in the trial of Chris Hilkin, Jesus stands where I was supposed to stand. And when God brings his sentence down, he goes, hey, you're on the list. That's Jesus right there. Go ahead. And me, behind Jesus, with his righteousness sanctifying, covering me, that's what the word atonement means, with his perfect righteousness covering over me, I will get in by nature of God saying that Jesus is perfect, who's paid the price on my behalf. So how do I get into heaven? I have Jesus stand in the seat of prosecution in my place. Why would Jesus do that? Because, Romans 5, 8, God has demonstrated his deep, unfailing love for his children in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The motivation of the substitution is the love of God for you. And maybe the, the lack of familiarity with having a father who loves you and thinks about you is lost on some of you because this generation fatherlessness is an epidemic. But let me tell you, as a father, I'm not even a great father. I just try to be a good one. There was nothing that I would not do. There was, no, there was nothing that I wouldn't pay that, so that my kids would experience not a bit of pain. And your father loves you like that. He loves you so much that he sacrificed his son so that you could become his daughter. He sacrificed his son so that you could become his son. He sacrificed his son so that on the day when you stand before the king, Jesus, who did live a perfect life, he did, Isaiah 43, glorify God in all he did. He did not fall short of the glory of God. He is your righteousness. He is your defense. You just sit in the back going, why would you do this for me? And he goes, punish me instead. The wrath of God pours out on him. He is counted as righteous. And then he looks back at you and he says, go in and find rest. And then the next person comes up. And the next person comes up. And you, under the weight of the protection of the atonement of the love of Jesus, enter into eternity, not because of your goodness, not because of your righteousness, but because the wrath of God that was meant for you was poured out on Jesus, and the perfection that Jesus earned was given to you. That's the great substitution of the gospel. God becomes the sinner that you are and is punished for the sin that he didn't commit so that you who've committed a whole bunch of sins will be found perfect for the life that he lived. Motivated by love, given by grace, accomplished on the cross, one for you, what will be your response? The two people that will meet God face to face will either stand assuming their lack of guilt and saying, try me and see, I'm not guilty. I'm better than most. I tried really hard. I went to church. I was at Hume. Didn't you see me? Or those who go, I know that I'm guilty. Are you ready? <laughs> go ahead. And Jesus takes our place. That is how the wicked who have sin on their record 
can get in, even though the guest list is only one name long, Jesus gets me in by his righteousness, atoned and paid for on the cross. Now, if you sit here and go, that's me. I'm the guilty one. I'm the guilty party. I have sinned against him in thought, word, action, and attitude. I have also refused to do what he's called me to do in thought, word, action, and attitude. I am guilty, covered in sin. I will not stand trial and be found guiltless. What must I do? Romans 10 says this. This is your response. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead on your behalf, you will be saved. It is simultaneously the simplest and most complicated decision of your life. It is simple because grace could not be as simple as this. You say, Jesus, I believe. If you want to follow Jesus tonight for the first time, your confession is twofold. Jesus, 2,000 years ago when you died on that cross, I'm going to trust that you paid the price for the sin that I, that I owe the God of the universe. I trust that you paid the price for my treason, and I don't know why you did. And secondly, because of what you've done, you are the Lord. That, that word in the, in the Greek is kurios. It means God, you are the king of my life, and I will follow you. And I'm not going to do it perfectly. I might even do it super well. But from here on out, my life is yours. You will be saved. That's the gospel. There is a God. You fell short. God demonstrates his love for you in this. While, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He is now, he's now willing to stand in your place on that last day, but you must surrender your life and invite him to be your righteousness when that day comes in order for anything to happen. It can't just be some mental assent. Oh, cool, I understand the gospel. There must be submission of the will and a mortification of the flesh, a death to the old self. That is the gospel. That is why I can sit here and tell you that I still sin every day, but I have confidence beyond any reasonable doubt that when I see God face to face, I will go, bro, guilty, guilty every day, guilty as charged. I tried to live for you, but I really felt what Paul said in Romans chapter seven. The good that I knew I was supposed to do, I kept not doing, but I wanted to. And then the stuff that I was supposed to do, I kept not doing. I felt to myself, who can rescue me from this body of death? And then I remembered, you can. So while I'm guilty, I don't have to stand this trial because this guy loves me enough to stand in my place. Jesus, you're up. Perfect, you're on the list, you're going in. Jesus goes, go in. And I'm gonna enter the kingdom of heaven, not by the faith of me being good enough, but the faith that Jesus was sufficient. He was my propitiation, he was a sacrifice on my behalf, and his blood paid the price for my sins. He was a man, he was ugly, despised by people who would hide their face, he was smitten, shredded, and afflicted, and we did not behold any esteem in him, but by his wounds we have been healed. That's the gospel, and I want you to respond to it tonight. And I'm asking you to do that. I'm not going to get some emotional thing. No one's going to play music behind me. I'm not going to tell some really sad story to try to get you all hopped up and motivated. I just want you to get it here. John 17, Jesus prays, I want them to know God and the one who he has sent. I'm not going manipulate, to manipulate you emotionally. This is the gospel of Jesus. There is a God. You've sinned against him. The punishment for treason is death. Jesus is willing to stand in your place. You must surrender your life and confess that he is Lord of your life and that he died on the cross for your sins. And his resurrection proved one thing, that he is legit. He can make dead things live again. He did it for himself and he'll do it for you. I'm gonna pray for us. At the end of that prayer, if you want to respond to the gospel in this same way, I'm gonna ask you to stand up at the end of this prayer. Your standing up is gonna be part of your public declaration that Romans 10 talks about, Jesus is now Lord of my life, and I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. Listen, if that freaks you out, and you go, no, I'm not standing. If you can't stand in a room of mostly Christians at a Christian camp in front of a Christian pastor with Christian youth pastors around you and Christian leaders, friend, you're not gonna stand in Babylon, so don't worry about it. But if you genuinely hate your sin and you're ready to follow Jesus, then I'm gonna ask you in boldness in front of these people to stand up at the end of this prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, for some of us, you've been pursuing us from the day that we were born. We've rejected you and we've turned against you. We've sought our own way. We've sought our own desires. We have 
maybe not carved a large statue to Nebuchadnezzar, but we have chased gods of our own heart, of our own design. Some of us have even chased a false version of you, one that's just here to give me good things, some kind of cosmic slot machine that just wields out blessings on blessings and is never there to call me to repentance or call me to living for you or call me to discipleship or call me to sanctification. And we just got this wrong idea of who you are. And God, for some of us, we've gotten it for the first time and, and we want to surrender our lives to you. And God, if that's us, right now we're gonna pray this prayer in our hearts to you. If that's you, would you join me in this prayer? Keep your eyes closed. In your hearts, pray along with me. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I have rebelled against you and everything that I've done. I have not lived my life for your glory. I am stained with sin. I'm broken in it. I have committed treason against you. And God, if I stood in front of your perfect holiness, I would be guilty as charged with every sin, broken every law. But God, tonight I quit. I surrender. I'm tired of trying to play the game of righteousness. I'm trying to be my own, I'm tired of being my own God. I want to give it all to you. And, and, and when we're reading through Romans, God, I know that's your perfect and holy word. And it says that you respond when a sinner cries out to you and, and, and you demonstrate your love for me. I don't know why you love me, but you do. The Bible says you do, and I trust it. And you've demonstrated your love for me in the fact that you died on a cross in my place and absorbed the wrath that I deserved so that I can be found guiltless on that day. And you're gonna take my wrath and then you're gonna give me your perfection so I can enter the kingdom of heaven? Why? I don't even know that kind of love, but I receive it tonight. I believe that when you died on that cross, you took my sin away. I believe when you rose again from the dead that your resurrection proved that you have the power to make dead things live again. And God, that's where I'm headed in my life. Whether it be today, tomorrow, 80 years from now, I will one day be nothing but a dead thing. And I know that you have the power to make that live again. And I trust in you. And God, starting today, I, I give my whole life to you. I surrender. I'm not gonna do it perfectly. I know it's gonna come with a lot of tripping up in the way, but from here on out, I wanna start. I wanna know what it means to follow you. I wanna be taught the things of you. I wanna to understand more about you because from here on out, you are my father and I am your son. You are my father and I am your daughter. I give it all to you. Receive the sacrifice of our lives laid out and we receive the promise of your eternal life in that moment. Let me pray, amen. If tonight for the first time you said that prayer on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you to stand up. One, two, three, stand up. Stay standing for a second. Stay standing for a second. If you're standing, I want you to recognize something. You're standing in Babylon. You're standing in a culture that is vehemently opposed to what you've just done. Your Father in heaven, who you now, Romans 18 says, for the first time may now appropriately call Father. Before today, you were not son, you were not daughter. But in him, in your submission, you may now cry out to him as Abba, Father. He is now your father. You are now son. You are now daughter. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you guys go ahead and take a seat. We're going to wrap up in the same way that is the only way appropriate to give God all the glory for when he, Ezekiel 36, changes hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. So we're going to all stand up. And as a family united together, we're going to sing about the, the grace and the mercy of our God.